The tragedy at Waco is, I think, probably without a doubt, the single most tragic incident in American law enforcement history. We must get to the bottom of the unanswered questions and take some steps to do everything possible to ensure that this sort of thing does not happen again. Because I don't believe the American public would stand for another Waco. A quote from former Congressman Bob Barr. I would sit for another Waco, though. You would what? <laughs> I would sit for another Waco. You would sit for another it's, Waco? I, the American public wouldn't stand for it. But oh, my God. Sit for it? I don't know. You know what? I'd watch it on a... No, that's terrible. I'd sit in my recliner. <laughs> I'd sit my lazy boy and be an armchair ATF agent. I don't know. Like I, armchair quarterback. <laughs> sure. What a terrible start the, to nope, this. Nope, what that a terrible is, start to the show. You know what's not terrible, though, Evan? The Gems of History podcast. You should just introduce it there, (laughs) like with no context. (laughs) That's us. We're the Gems of History podcast. I'm Jacob Schopp, and with me is Evan Roosh. Hey, everyone. And you know what else isn't terrible, Evan? The response that we've gotten on this series so far. Yeah, it's been absolutely phenomenal. People love a good three-part series where there's good history talked about. Who would have thought? on On a history podcast, nonetheless. Who would have thought? Not us. Not us. Or not me, at least. (laughs) (laughs) I usually come with topics like a little like someone got possessed or like something random. But who would have thought? You know, I was thinking the other day about how we talked about like, this was early episodes, but one of our Halloween episodes, we just talked about a woman getting sexually assaulted by a giraffe to death. And I was like, man, we have changed. I'm not going to lie. I you Can't, talked about it. That happens to me all the time. People, <laughs> people will always ask me like what my favorite episode was, and then I just go blank. I'm like, I've never actually spoken to a microphone. Yeah, I know. Before. Well, that's how this podcast goes. Because like with this series specifically, I've been like so excited to finish it mm-hmm. because then I can expel all of this information from my brain for a while. No, it's very true. Like it happens quite a bit, at least to me. Like once you're done with a topic. I just completely forget everything about the topic. And then people ask follow-up questions. I'm like, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen then, to the episode. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> oh, but, man. But today we are finishing up our series on Waco and the Branch Davidians. So when we last left them, they had just initially gotten raided by the ATF. There was a big shootout. And that shootout happened on February 28th, which is a day after this episode is going to come out, which is very ironic. I think that's the third time in the last four months where we've had just preposterous timing. Yeah, it's weird. But that is where we left them. We have so far five Branch Davidians died in the initial shootout, uh, along with four ATF agents. And they were kind of just set, everyone's settling in to get ready for the rest of this whole ordeal to go. Yeah, everyone's settling in for what's going to be quite the long haul, an actual siege like yeah. it's termed the waco siege for a reason because it's and we'll talk about like what all gets brought oh yeah for the seizures if you will <laughs> it is not it is terribly over the top yeah it's unreal but yeah excited to dive in um just kind of talk about what all happened kind of really dive into the investigation and then honestly just us talking about it yeah like, and 
the post story, I guess. I we'll had dive to, into like our actual thoughts. I had to like separate my note taking for this, so I did like half of them like way earlier in the week, and then ha- like the second half in the last like twenty four hours. And I did not review the first half before I went on to the second half, so this could just be a terrible mess because there's so much stuff in here. But I think we'll be all right. I think well, we'll, Waco in itself was kind of a terrible mess. It if is, you will. yeah. So I, I think we'll be okay. I think we're gonna finish strong on this one. Are you ready to uh, dive in and see what happens with our good old buddy David Koresh next? Absolutely am. You ready, Zooks? Oof. And she's sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> so the second part of our coverage of Waco took us through the transformation of Mount Carmel and ended with the ATF and the Branch Davidians having a shootout, as I mentioned earlier. But that was, to say the least, the beginning of the problems the Branch Davidians were going to have. During the shootout, it was said that the women inside the compound attempted to protect the children whatever way they could. Some of them shielded them with their bodies, while others attempted to distract the children and get them dressed. But then once the shooting happened, they all dropped to the floor once bullets began flying through the windows and through the walls and through the ceiling. Yeah, it's extremely harrowing, the actual initial shootout. Like in episode two, you included uh, audio from the call where you can just hear bullets and pandemonium happening in the background while he's saying, like, stop. Yeah. And like, you- stop shooting at us. There's kids in here. Wait, and you can hear the guy on the phone. He's just like, shit, shit, right. oh, shit. Like, he knows how bad it is. Yeah. But he can't do anything because none of the ATF had communication. So that was good. Yeah, again, they had an unimaginable amount of men, and they had actual huge cattle trucks, if you will, to load all these men. And just immense firepower, but no one brought a radio or yeah. like a walkie-talkie. Well, the, in the Waco, the uh, Rules of Engagement, the documentary that we watched for this, the, one of the congressmen at one point is just like, this, this is so like sloppy. Yeah. I, I don't know how you guys got away with passing this search warrant with how sloppy everything's written. You guys got codes wrong in here. Like, everything's not good about this. Right. Everything's super sloppy in the investigation. Like, we'll get into it. Like, it's it's brought to light. This is a huge reason why the ATF and federal agencies are not looked upon very fondly, even to this day, based solely on this event. Yep. And Ruby Ridge, but... So while the mothers were trying to shield the children, other Branch Davidians went to the church or the chapel and the compound and knelt in prayer while the assault was going on. But not everyone was ready to take it lying down, and some, as we mentioned last episode, began to fire back at the agents. And they all stated that they were acting in self-defense, which maybe they were. Right. I mean, it's, again, one of those classic who fired first uh, instances where it's just conveniently lost to history. Yep. There are multiple sources that I found that say an FBI agent actually shot first. But again, that's just one source. Yeah, exactly. And again, like the federal government, the ATF, all the agencies denied deny deny yeah and in in the hearings one of the lawyers that is kind of on the side of the branch davidians and defending like this was way over the top he says like once the atf put their hands up and said they were leaving everyone stopped shooting from inside if they wanted to they could have annihilated the atf but they all stopped right once the atf like admitted they were going back so i mean if they were acting in self-defense that's a good defense for that argument right i 
spoilers for like at the end of the show when we talk about like this group never had hostile or like dangerous intent. No, not like, really. That wasn't their MO. That wasn't part of their belief system. Like not to do progressive violence. Right. Like that just wasn't just wasn't what they did. Exactly. A couple hours later, helicopters once again buzzed over Mount Carmel, and with that, the Branch Davidians obviously expected another round of shooting to start, but it turned out that these helicopters belonged to the news reporters. And by mid-afternoon, dozens of newspaper reporters swarmed the barricades around the compound attempting to get the story with camera crews from up to 17 different TV stations. And shortly after this, the federal law enforcement agents declared a 10-mile no-fly zone over Mount Carmel. Yeah, this is by far the most covered news event of the entire year of 1992-93, like that entire era. Like, this is by far the most covered news story that's happening. Right. And the thing with this one versus Ruby Ridge, which is a similar kind of scenario, but this one is so much grander in scale in the Mm -hmm. fact that not only the players involved have more people on both sides, but the amount of coverage that like the news agencies were able to get because the ATF brought them along. Right. So it's like you see the footage. That's where you get the classic video of the agents breaking the window on the roof and throwing in grenades and stuff. So do you think the ATF brought these guys along? Like, maybe we'll do this one right. Let's make sure we get this on camera. That was entirely their plan. You know, yeah. like this is off the heels of Ruby Ridge, another big old goof where they kind of mislabeled semi-mislabeled like a family yeah um if you want more information or full thoughts on that go listen back to those episodes but i mean it truly they wanted the press coverage there like sure they put in the 10 mile barrier but they still talked yeah to press like throughout the entire 51 52 day siege like it's not like they were shy about it no not at all So with the news reporters getting ushered out, gunshots did again ring out later in the night on the night of the the initial raid. It turned out that one of the Branch Davidians, who had been working at the auto shop with two other men, tried to sneak back into the compound, and they were found out. The man's name was Mike Schrader, and he was one of the drummers in the Branch Davidians band, and he lived at the auto shop, but once he heard that everything was going on, he tried to get back, and ended up in a firefight with the federal agents and wound up shot with four shots to his body and leg. And when he was found, he had three shots to the back of the head inflicted at close range. One of the men that was with him trying to sneak back in claimed to have heard a rifle shot first versus Mike's pistol, but the feds claimed that Mike opened fire on the agents first and he was torn down when they returned fire. One of the men, one of the other men with him was taken into custody by agents and the final man was captured over a week later and arrested as well. Yeah, for those counting at home, that's seven shots into this man's body where, again, a rifle was heard. Um, I don't know. Do they ever look at his gun? I don't believe I saw like if they actually shot a shot. He, I mean, did, that's... he did fire back. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. that's not mis- like that's not disputed, really. But. The three shots from close range to the back of the head, they couldn't examine his hat that he was wearing because the hat meant missing. Well, I mean, yeah, he they turned his head into... It's just... Yeah. Like, I'm not even going to describe it anymore because it's gross. But. It is. Immediately, the ATF attempted to defend themselves to the media by claiming that they were outgunned and that their element of surprise was ruined because one of the news reporters that they invited tipped off David Koresh with a call to the compound. Yeah, it's always the 
common theme is denying or passing the blame, which, I mean, when you're a federal government or when you're a federal agency, they kind of have to do that, right? Like, you can't say that it was your fault as a federal agency because then you truly, or as a federal agent, because then you're just like the scapegoat yep, for their career. exactly. Not justifying it, but like that was their mindset in this. Yeah, and in this case, no one really does get scapegoated for it, honestly. Like the ATF mm-hmm. just kind of says, nope, we were right. And everyone's just like, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they spent money on, I'm looking at their page right now regarding this incident. They spent money on SEO like, to make <laughs> sure that their their thoughts are like within the first two two things that pop up it's like the malcolm gladwell article atf atf's official response if you're spending as much money as the new yorker on getting your search results on the top of the page it's a lot of money (laughs) yeah despite the fact that the heads of the raid had received word that the element of surprise was compromised they had continued with their actions anyways Robert Rodriguez, one of the four men who moved in next to Mount Carmel a couple weeks prior to the raid, went in front of Congress and nearly cried when recounting how his superiors ignored his warnings and almost ruined the agency he had massive respect for. According to Colonel Charlie Beckwith, the founder of the U.S. Army's elite Delta Force and a former British SAS member, said, quote, had a similar event taken place in the U.S. Army, the responsible party would now be serving time in the correctional facility at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, end quote. He also condemned the ATF's strategies, claiming, quote, ATF might as well have just run a flag up telling everyone something was about to happen, end quote. Yeah, you're going to hear a lot of basically everyone that wasn't directly there as part of the agencies, they all say, like, yeah, you guys did that completely wrong. And they, I mean, they, for lack of a better term, like, they just kind of, like, went cowboy. Yeah. When, like, we get to the eventual fire and just through just gunning someone down who was trying to sneak back in, like, they kind of were on, like, a shoot-first like, yeah. order. And they're trying to serve a, a knock warrant. It's not a no-knock warrant. Right. Like, they have to go up to the door, knock, and say, here's the warrant. Do you accept the terms of coming with us or whatever? But they didn't even knock. They oh, just, no. The shooting started before that. So, But the shots hit the door. Does that qualify as a knock? Kind of. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when it, it's Again, not knocking. Again, that's on the ATF's website. We did with bullets. <laughs> it's not knocking on the door. It's knocking through the door. Right, yeah. <laughs> but when you have these people that are saying this, too, aren't just any, like news reporters or something. This guy is the founder of the Delta Force of the Army. This guy knows how to do this kind of thing. Right, so, a very credible source. A very condemning statement from that man. Mm-hmm. The ATF initially suspended and shortly after fired two of the raid's commanders but those two men were reinstated the next year. The agency basically said that the reason the raid had failed was because it had lost its element of surprise, but failed to accept responsibility that they may have trumped up the charges of their initial warrant in order to attack Mount Carmel in the first place. All right, like during the investigation, I believe in episode one we covered this, like they were trying to say that there were drugs in there. They were trying to like get that grenade story going yeah. as well. So, I mean, they were very, very much building up like their case and i mean in the eventual like investigative report and this is from the atf's website like their statement their side if you will like about waco they say that the atf's investigation showed that there were like 136 firearms including assault rifles and handguns 700 plus magazines for said firearms 
200,000 rounds of ammunition, 110 upper and lower receivers for AR-15 M16 rifles. So we talked about how a huge source of income for the Branch Davidians was to construct these guns kind of from hand or modify single-shot rifles into these uh, more assault-type rifles and then sell them. Yeah. Which, again, legal. Yeah, totally. Uh, Grenade launcher attachments for those same ones. They also don't have a number by that one. They nice. just uh, have that as a one of their empty, empty bullets. And allegedly, 400 plus empty M31 rifle grenades, along with black powder and explosive chemicals. See, and the thing is, those numbers could be reasonably true because, like you just mentioned, they did sell a lot of this stuff at gun shows, and they they admitted like we have a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. You guys can come see it. They just never went to go actually investigate. That is true. David Koresh openly invited the ATF to come check it out. Yeah. Uh, we covered that in episode one as well. Like, they weren't shy about it. Not at I mean, all. But we'll get into all that later. Mm-hmm. Immediately, all of the agencies began to shift around after the initial raid happened. David Koresh himself talked to CNN at 7.30 the night of the raid, saying that the people outside Mount Carmel don't understand the Branch Davidians and said the ATF's actions were unnecessary. In exchange for letting his message play on the radio, that night a couple of kids ended up leaving the compound, but they left their parents behind. The next day, the ATF started to lose its grip on the situation, giving way to the FBI and their elite hostage rescue team, which had also been in action at Ruby Ridge. The initial negotiators that Koresh talked to from the ATF, who admitted that their tactical commanders were not in the mood to listen to peace talks, were replaced with FBI negotiators who were backed by psychologists. Throughout the entire 51-day siege, 243 government tapes were recorded from the negotiations between the Branch Davidians and the authorities. That's an insane amount of just pure content. And some of them were up to five hours long. Right. So, so this is like we have all of these too. Like, mm-hmm. well, most of them, whatever the agencies decided to release. But that that's why I like the uh, the documentary so much because they play a lot of that that documentary right. or the documented tape stuff. So it's very interesting to hear how calm everyone is on these tapes. Do you think that this is one of the more like requested Freedom of Information Act requests? Just information about Waco. I would assume it's up there. Like it's got to be up there because there's sure. so much stuff that the ATF never, or they never really addressed directly. Right. So there's a lot of stuff people could be like, "Hey, I want to see what this is all about and try and figure it out for themselves." But mm-hmm. President Bill Clinton made a statement from Washington saying that he and the FBI believed that the raid would last no more than a week to ten days. Ooh, <laughs> a smidge off. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> Groundhog, it's like Groundhog. Yeah. You're except they're waiting for like David Koresh to come out. And pop Did you out see your tank's shadow? Yeah, <laughs> right. it'll last longer. 40 more days. <laughs> Meanwhile, former Branch Davidians gave press conferences talking about how they were brainwashed by Koresh. So these people are going on like national television shows and talking about, oh, we are part of a, a cult. Despite all of the media circus, Koresh and Steve Schneider, his right hand man, began talks with federal negotiators for a possible surrender. In exchange for the Branch Davidians coming out and surrendering, Koresh would get an appearance on ABC's Nightline to explain his beliefs. In response, Koresh told negotiators that he wanted each member of the Branch Davidians to make the choice for themselves, 
If anyone wanted to leave, they could. The negotiators then offered David the chance to record a tape for national radio to broadcast, which he accepted. The Branch Davidians themselves believed that they were waiting through the fifth seal of Revelation, which included a round of violence that they had just lived through, followed by a waiting period. Even though the negotiations were going well, the FBI was constantly patrolling the perimeter with jeeps and light tanks. Yeah, they literally brought light tanks for this siege, where there were already close to 900 people, like yeah. FBI, or excuse me, federal agents, policemen, Texas Rangers, uh, 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 National Guard, I was going to yeah. say Military Guard, but that's not a thing, National <laughs> Guard. Like, literally, if anyone wanted to be there, they kind of were allowed, up to a certain extent. Pretty much, yeah. But like 900, or just about 900 people. Yeah. All surrounding with light tanks for a group of like, I don't know, and like religious uh, followers. And the negotiations are going well, like right? by all accounts. Like we're talking about possible surrenders already. This is like a few days in, but then they keep bringing in more and more stuff. And they're mm-hmm. just like, don't worry. It's, it's nothing. It's not, nothing's going to happen. And he's like, you're going to burn our building down, aren't you? And they're like, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. Just keep talking to us about how you're coming out. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, every single or a majority of the talks, like they were bargaining with Koresh or whoever was on the phone. It wasn't always David Koresh on the other side for the Branch Davidians. It was always like a bargaining process where if you let certain people out, we'll give you certain supplies. Yep. Like that's just not how the Branch Davidians were viewing the situation. Like you mentioned, they were waiting for a fifth seal to be broken. You know, they were a community that doesn't, their community dynamics don't make sense in our eyes, but regardless, they were still a community right? with one goal in mind, which we don't understand. We may think is crazy, but to them, it's truth. It's gospel truth. Yep. On Tuesday, a couple days after the shootout, the plans were in place for any of the Branch Davidians who wanted to leave to do so. Koresh sent the audio tape that he had prepared for the radio, and in return, two older ladies and a couple of children left with it. The agreements were going smoothly, but once the elderly ladies left Mount Carmel, they were immediately treated like felons and arrested on charges of willfully using weapons to commit violent crimes of murder against federal law enforcement. After the poor treatment of these women, the U.S. Attorney's Office stated, quote, those bozos just rushed in without talking to anybody, slapped those, old, those poor old women in leg irons and handcuffs, end quote. Yeah, they, again, went very cowboy with just about everyone that will come out of this building yeah, it, and treated them like, like they were like hardcore felons. Yeah, it, it, and at this point, the Branch Davidians can see this. They're like, why would we come out if we're going to be treated like them and are like immediately treated like criminals? Right, like do... Does the ATF and the other federal agencies there not know that they still have windows? Like, they can see everything that's happening. However, despite this, Koresh's tape did get broadcast on the radio several times. Since the deal was technically made, Koresh began to get everyone ready for exit from the Mount Carmel compound. The request from the Branch Davidians for CBS to cover the proceedings was denied, and as everyone prepared for the surrender... Koresh made a statement through Steve Schneider, quote, We're not going. The time's not right. God has told David to wait, end quote. Right, and this is probably where a lot of, I'm just like trying to put my 
head and like the head of the federal agencies that are around there. They've been there for weeks. They're probably getting a ton well, of this, feedback from At this point they've only been there like 4 days. Oh, this is that early. Yeah, cuz this right, they right, right. they made the negotiations on Tuesday, like mm-hmm. they planned it out. So I'm assuming by Wednesday the people were leaving and then the next day he probably said this. So yeah, it's only been like a few days. Right. I was jumping the gun a little bit there. But still, like from the negotiator's perspective, it's like, oh, we were so close. Why can't we just get this thing to work? Right. But this is one of many instances in which the negotiators don't, un- the negotiators and the tactical officers don't understand how to deal with these people because they keep bringing scripture into it. And there's mm-hmm. like, what does this have to do with anything? And then the people inside are like, this is everything to do with everything. Yeah. So this is the only thing. Once David Koresh said this, the FBI believed it meant that David Koresh had planned to commit suicide in front of the cameras, but had made the decision to back out at the last second and staying in, decided to stay inside with his brainwashed hostage followers. Despite Koresh's reluctance to leave, the rest of the Branch Davidians were free to leave whenever they wanted, and throughout the siege, 35 people did make the decision to walk out. The only people who were not allowed to leave were David's family, who all of the adults felt needed to stick together to face whatever may happen. On the outside, the FBI told reporters that David was a deceiver and kept reporters miles away from the scene while cutting off any communication from the Branch Davidians except the line to the negotiators. So up to this point, they had negotiations, they had talks with the outside world. They could call outside the compound and stuff, that's how he talked to CNN. But now they're cutting it off completely except to the people that are directly negotiating with them for peace terms. Right. And like the FBI's communication to the media, like you mentioned, there was huge, like they weren't able to see the scene. But when they did talk to the media, they referred to Koresh as like he was using the Bible or excuse me, he was using like Bible babble. Yeah. He was called or they called him a self-centered liar, a coward. Uh, phony messiah, child molester. Well, that one, that one's pretty. That accurate. one's yeah, that's justified. A con man, delusional, egotistical, and every every, name under every the single sun. name. So I mean, that's already they're already putting those thoughts, those terms into the minds of like the American public, and of course, the government as a whole, who are just again watching this. Yeah, on the news. They're in Washington right now, so right. they're just getting word from the front lines and going off whatever they get told yeah the negotiators continued to question those inside about their heavy web heavy oh my god why can i not say that word (laughs) it's scary word (laughs) heavy weaponry (laughs) the negotiators continued to question those inside mount carmel about their heavy weaponry while telling those outside that the members of the branch davidians were maniacal cult members sociologist constance a jones stated quote Television framed the conflict in terms of good versus evil. As the siege wore on, whatever violent images the cameras had on files, such as the February 28th assault, or even the last images of Jonestown, were repeatedly aired. Because of the element of suspense induced by narrative and inflamed by visual cues, viewers were prepared and came to anticipate that the siege would culminate in a dramatic climax. The ante at Waco was upped because of the, intervent- the intervention of television reporting, end quote. That is a very interesting point that they only really had footage of the initial siege or the initial shootout. 
So, I mean, that's the only thing that they can show right. on TV. And once you constantly see that same imagery while getting these, the different terms that I talked about, saying that the lair leader is a con man and he's like spouting Bible, Bible babble. I keep on saying Bible babble. <laughs> Bible babble. I mean, that's just forms of very, like, very anti branch Davidian take. It is. In the U.S the U.S. citizen's mind. Well, and they're already comparing them to Jim Jones by playing the, yeah. Jim, the Jonestown footage on repeat, too. So it's like you're already framing in these people's minds that these all of the people inside are similar to how the people in People's Temple were, which mm-hmm. is not how it was. No. Like, Jim Jones was an absolute madman and, like, constantly drugged up. So mm-hmm. it's just like, that's not, that's not David Koresh. David Koresh is, like, just an everyman who decided to interpret the Bible a certain way, which isn't correct right. the way he did it, but he's also sticking to those beliefs to the end. Right. So. These people were just high on God. you know, Literally. <laughs> like, <laughs> so all this media coverage ultimately ended up working against the federal agents, however. According to Waco, the book that we used for the main source in this series, one of the negotiators complained that the press was putting a lot of pressure on the feds because all of their bosses were watching coverage on TV and weren't seeing anything happening. But despite this, the public opinion was still against the Branch Davidians. When a banner was hung outside the window asking for the press so that the Branch, Covi- so that the Branch Davidians could tell their side of the story, various press members responded with a mocking video. And this is probably one of the more well-known things from... The whole thing is where they say, God help us, we need the press on a big banner that they hang out the window. Mm -hmm. And then you see a video of a bunch of press members jumping into frame. They go, God help us, we are the press. So it's obvious that already public opinion is way against this group. We'll definitely talk about this when we talk about are they a cult or not (laughs) later. Um, But it just definitely makes me think of like, does this happen if social media and like the internet is like in full force? Because... Literally anyone in this area in the in Mount Carmel can just like tweet out something like right. this is what's happening, this is what happened, and also get like video evidence of you know the ATF being all ATF. That's very true. I never thought about that. No, we'll talk I definitely want to bring that up and talk about that later, but sure. it's just very interesting. Like a tweet could maybe like sway the entire course of public opinion about this entire siege. Yeah. If well it, it, Especially with how much anti-police sentiment there is nowadays, like oh, yeah. this would never happen the way it did for sure. Right, <laughs> that is so. That's very true. <laughs> so Oprah, the uh, big TV personality, had never heard of her. <laughs> <laughs> Oprah Winfrey had former members on her show, former members of the Branch Davidians on her show, reiterating that those at Mount Carmel were part of a cult, and she continued the narrative of linking their story to that of Jim Jones and the People's Temple. The media portrayed the happenings in Waco like a miniseries about religious fanatics, wild biblical rants, and the beating of babies. Despite a later review from the Treasury Department admitting that the term cult has negative connotations, they stand by their usage of it in the case of the Branch Davidians. Yeah, and the site that I keep on referring to, like the ATF site, they love the C word. <laughs> like they, that's like the only label that they use to describe the Branch Davidians. Yeah. Most resources will say that. Oh, for sure. Theology professor Nancy T. Ammerman, who consulted on preventing another Waco in briefings after the fact, stated, quote, I was sufficiently influenced by this widespread assessment of Koresh as incomprehensible Bible babble, 
that I was surprised when I first began to listen to and read his teachings. They are but a variant of what could be found in any fundamentalist and millennialist churches, end quote. I'm struggling with words today. (laughs) Brother, me and you both. (laughs) But that's... That's like a big thing to say for a person who studies religion. It's like once I actually read what he was teaching, it made sense why this was happening the way it was. Right. I think I mentioned this in episode one of this series. Like this was a hot time for religious reform. Like there were a lot of new churches, a lot of new ways of thinking. And that's just like what America's always been, right? Like yeah. There's always offshoots and new editions of religions. I mean, and a lot of the times the new additions are met with hostility by the general public, yeah. see the Mormons. Yeah, right. And I, maybe this is a good point where we can talk about, like, are they a cult? Yeah. Because I, I did polls on our Twitter and our Instagram, and the, a majority of the responses all said, yes, they are a cult. And there is a couple that were, like, not sure or no directly. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, the public sentiment is that they are. And I think that's a very good sample of showing how the narrative has been pushed throughout the years and i'm not saying that it's it necessarily incorrect but i want to get your take on it too because i believe you did respond to one and you said yes oh yeah i hammered the yes yeah okay (laughs) that was more for i guess just to see the results i'm more of a not sure because again when i think cult when you hear the word cult the first thing i think of is jim jones yep like that sort of wild drug using violence intending or intending to use violence man whereas the branch davidians while koresh honestly like used the bible in a way that is not great to justify having child wives essentially they weren't looking to conduct violence they weren't looking to overthrow the government they weren't looking to do really anything that hostile. They were just trying to like make some money, wait out the end of the world. Yeah. And like sit on the stockpile of guns to sell, which again, legal. Yeah. And this is where my this is what I've been wrestling with kind of the entire time I've been researching this. Is anytime you cause I tried to look up like a good definition of like what makes a cult a cult. And all of the websites list like various things. They're like, oh, like they have a charismatic leader who the people can't live without. They have, they don't let them communicate with their families and stuff. And I'm like, how many of these do you have to tick off before it's cl- considered a cult? Like, if they have half of them, is it a cult? If they have three quarters of them, is it a cult? So that's why I've been kind of conflicted because, as we mentioned, people were allowed to leave, they weren't mm-hmm. stuck here. Uh, in the case of David Koresh versus like Jim Jones, or there's a Japanese death cult called uh, Aum Shinrikyo, and they were led by a man named Shoko Asahara. And those Jim Jones and Shoko Asahara, like at the end, they were pushing violence. Mm-hmm. Like Jim Jones killed the congressman, Leo Ryan. Uh, Shoko Asahara did sarin attacks on public transit. Like they both eventually got to that point. And I think this is where it's different is because David Koresh didn't have enough time to, if he, if he even wanted to get to that point. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? If he got that far, I would say by far, oh yeah, he's a cult leader. And that's, that was the whole point. I just don't think that, that was a great point. Like, let's say he doesn't die in his late 20s. Does he eventually get to that point? Like, does he eventually get to a point where he brings on violence personally? 
I don't think so. And that's the funny thing is because the relig- a religious movement versus a cult. Everyone says like a religion is... They like toe the line. Yeah, <laughs> and everyone says like a religion is like a cult but with time. Like that's yeah. why Scientology is a religion now. That's why Mormonism is a religion now because mm-hmm. they've had time to get to that point. The Branch Davidians didn't really have that. But also the Branch Davidians had multiple leaders before David Koresh. Mm-hmm. And that's why I don't really... It's hard for me to say they are a cult because they didn't start with David Koresh. These people had, some of them have been there 40 years at this point before mm-hmm. he even got there. So it's hard for me to say that he was a cult leader because these people had already bought into the message before him. Right. It's truly saying like, like remember the pastors that we grew up with at our elementary school, our church, whatever, growing up. That'd be like saying like, that's a cult, but it's really just a religion with multiple people that like come in. Yeah. Right? Like when you think of a cult, it's synonymous. 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 It's a cinnamon stick. It's <laughs> it's synonymous with the leader, right? Like yeah. the reason why we think of Jim Jones is because like it was his cult. I think you'd be more hard pressed to remember what the actual cult was called as opposed to like, you know that name. You know Jonestown and you know Jim Jones. Yes. Like you know that. Right. So you don't know like the actual title of it. Whereas like this, I think people more focus on like it's the Branch Davidians. Yeah. Like, yeah, of course, David Koresh gets brought up a ton, but it's more like the religion gets brought up. A religion that still is like kind of thriving. Yeah. And like everything that I read, because I tried to find specific articles on just the Branch Davidians and Mm -hmm. the term cult. And most of them that I found talked about how now there's so many different scholars that are trying to get rid of the term cult just because Mm -hmm. it's now especially it's so overused and it has negative connotation immediately attached to it so for example if they got press on the news and it said they were a religious religious movement the the reaction would have been way different but when you put cult on it then everyone thinks jonestown right if you say this is a religious movement or this is just a group of adamant believers of a certain sect of christianity like this is protested this is it's probably statements made by like the catholic church even yeah like they've been known to like get involved in some stuff but, like once you throw on the c word it's uh it definitely has a whole different meaning whole different connotation yeah and it makes me think as well about like the satanic panic oh yeah for sure you know of course this is like different belief systems or whatever but I mean, during that time, the word cult was used very willy-nilly and led to very silly things happening in a lot of cases. Yeah. You know, so I mean, even early Christianity, if you want to go all the way back, was considered a yeah, cult by the Romans. Yeah, they were called a cult, yeah. They were a cult. I mean, no, sorry, let me back. They were considered a cult. Because they were different than the mainstream. <laughs> Which, I mean, historically, I think Mal- Malcolm Gladwell does a tremendous job of explaining this in the New Yorker article. I believe you already said that source, but... He states that throughout the course of history, particularly American history, we are not accepting of people who are like outwardly living differently to the social norm. Yeah. Right. So like that's why we have such a hard time in our history, like living with like Mormonism, for example. You know, that was such a abstract religion where it got to the point where an angry mob broke into an Illinois jail and like yeah. literally just killed lynched a man. <laughs> yeah, lynched a man, Joseph Smith. Um we still see it a lot, I mean, with like transphobia and um 
just outward hate towards uh, people in the LGBTQ community. Malcolm Gladwell also compares it to that. You know, if people who live their uh, lives according to what some people don't consider or accept as a social norm, people aren't, I mean, they, people don't trust people who, are, who live outside the apparent social norm. And it's a very sad thing, and it leads to violence where it just really doesn't need to happen. So very long-winded answer, but no, I, I personally, ask me again in a few hours, I may change my mind, but I really don't think that we're looking at a cult here. But the thing is, like, I don't think they are either, but mm-hmm. I can't say that anyone's wrong for saying they are, no. because that's the connotation yeah. that the, the word carried into this. So, I mean, if that's what you want to say they are, and that's a term you want to use, then that's fine. Do you think that like the word cult just means something different nowadays compared to the nineties? It does, yes. Like this, I would the think so. time frame and like the general like what was all happening. Like we're coming off like some incredibly crazy stories. Well, I think now it's like less of a pejorative term than it was then. Right. Because now yeah. like we call QAnon a cult, but then people just joke about it. So right. it's <laughs> it's not the same like weight behind the word, but it yeah. still is a pejorative term, you know? And mm-hmm. Yeah, what you said about just not conforming to social norms, that's, I read a really good article about how it's like a cult versus a religious movement is like, Mm -hmm. are you like us or are you not like us? And that's what Oprah played to on her show when she kept saying, oh, how did you get brainwashed? You were part of a cult. Is he a good cult leader? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, you're not like us. But now that you're out, you're more like us. And that's what I'm doing is I'm converting you back to being like us. Right, it's bringing so, them back into like the social norm, the fold, and that's why her program was so popular. Yeah. So, also unbelievable. Get like talk about like interviews to get yeah, like, right. Oh, this is the only time I'll shout out Oprah, but like I guess she told the story wrongly. Yeah, but told the story. But anyways, uh, yeah, that I just wanted to have that discussion and kind of put that out there because oh. I I think that like. Like I said, it's not wrong for people who are listening to be like, no, they were a cult. That's fine if you want to think it that way. But I also think that there's more to it than just a simple label. Going back to like if social media and the internet were as prevalent back then as it is today in the situation, do you think, what kind of numbers do you think David Koresh is doing in terms, like he had over a hundred people just by like word of mouth, essentially. Like can you imagine if he had an online platform like if you see like let's take for example he'd be I, like joel osteen i was gonna say like do you think he has you think he's doing like mega church numbers no. or do you think he's doing let's say like 500 to a thousand members i would say he'd be like a small like a minor influencer if he was on instagram kind of like mm-hmm. he, if he'd posted like his his preaching and stuff on there i think he could get a following but i don't think it would blow up or anything that's just interesting because like if he is if he's appealing to the everyday Texan or just like everyday man, he's more relatable than your typical like cult leader. If that's true. Maybe he would. I personally think he would be doing some numbers. He probably could. Honestly, yeah, like, you're probably right. <laughs> and like we're not talking. We're also talking his message is then nationwide by extension, like worldwide because everyone has access. A majority of people have access to the Internet. We're probably not looking at just like one central. We're not calling this like the siege of Waco. Like people can access his message, yeah, wherever. Yep. Right. So it's more spread out. Maybe it's not so like concentrated. He doesn't have to make money selling guns. ATF is never involved. Oh yeah. It'd he be probably completely. becomes a Netflix documentary series where a child wife grows up realizes like what the 
hell was that? Oh yeah, that? he becomes the next Nexium he become, guy. Exactly, yeah. right. Like it's probably more of like that situation instead yeah. of a full-on raid, which I thought, I've been thinking about this quite like honestly, quite some time. My like, whole brain's been full of this man. Like if, he, if this man just like has a smartphone, he prob- it's probably, it's very speculative, but I doubt that it ends up in a 50 yeah. plus day siege. I mean, we did have one guy on our Twitter poll respond very angrily and said, who cares if they were a cult? Fuck the FBI and the ATF. So I mean, oh, so- there are people that are still very frustrated about this. <laughs> was his handle like at a cab? Or- no, it was literally like... <laughs> was it was like conservative Billy or something like that. Oh. And like his whole profile was just like mega shit. And I was like, mm, all right, fair, <laughs> good for you, buddy. Right. The surprise of no one. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, back to the story. Anyway, back to the plot. <laughs> <laughs> While ignoring attempts to talk to Koresh and his followers about their faith and instead pushing standard negotiation tactics, the FBI was also ignoring each other. According to Special Agent Clinton R. Van Zant. Part of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, the command, tactical, and negotiation teams only met once during the five weeks that he was in Waco. Others said that pressure from superiors pushed behavioral experts to change their tone as time went on, making it seem like an aggressive approach was the way to go. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's really not like too surprising. Like you mentioned the point of they only met once. Like typically agencies don't really work together. Like barring like something extreme like this, but this right? is all in the FBI. Like, oh, this is all. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's not even different agencies. I thought we were talking like F- head of FBI, head of ATF. No, it's just yeah. it's just like the tactical group commander and the negotiation tactics commander, and it, right. they just met one time. One has a gun, and the other has a megaphone. Exactly. <laughs> Tactical members were seen to be antagonizing the Branch Davidians, flipping them off, and mooning them from the perimeter. <laughs> With all this going on, the negotiators, the negotiators obviously couldn't make much progress. Right. Weren't they also like crushing the Branch of Adian's cars yeah. as well, like in open, just in the public? And like they weren't, they were just, they were kind of assholes. Like, one, of the outside, thing, like, one of the things that kind of blew my mind was during the Waco documentary that I, we watched, it shows like overhead shots from during the raid or during the siege. And you can see how many tire tr- or tread tracks from the yeah. tanks there are all over the compound. It's like they have been doing this day after day after day, and they just don't care about what's in the way. They just run it over. Mm-hmm. Koresh made no threats, didn't set any deadlines, and made no demands, which are all common instances in hostage situations. As Assistant Attorney General Edward Dennis said, quote, Indeed, the quote-unquote negotiations are characterized as quote-unquote communicating with Koresh or quote-unquote talking to Koresh because the Davidian situation lacked many of the elements typically present in hostage barricade situations. The Branch Davidians seemed to be in the place they wanted to be in. Koresh wanted to talk to someone who could do something about the situation, but the negotiators told him there was a chain of command that the messages needed to be re- needed to be relayed through what a time to just like really hunker down and be like no we have a system <laughs> like yeah and also they refer to everyone in the building as hostages where like they weren't like we've, there. Ar- we've already discussed this they're like, there because they want to be there right they're there breaking the fifth seal one like the, waiting out the fifth seal one of the members named scott sanobe he did one of the videos and you can right. watch it in the documentary and he's like my name's scott sanobe i'm not being held here. I'm here because I want to be here. Mm-hmm. And to my kids that left the compound, like to my 
grandfather or my father or whatever, like, take care of my kids and I'll see you soon. So it's like, right. they're all upbeat and they're like, this is where I'm going to be. Yeah, they're really like, they have the mindset of this. We kind of called this. Yeah. We knew that it was happening. Like there was initial violence. Now it's the waiting period. Exactly. All according to scripture. Eventually, the FBI superiors told the negotiators to cut through all the quote-unquote Bible babble and get somewhere with the Branch Davidians. Granted, something had been accomplished in the first five days because 21 kids exited Mount Carmel. Custody hearings began to see where those kids would go, and despite David's actual wife, Rachel, asking the agents to feed the kids a healthy diet when they got out, they were apparently given lots of soda and junk food. No. <laughs> so those kids are living. It's like, yeah, it's like when your uncle goes to watch you and it's like, all right, kids, we're going to Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, or you're going to grandma's house. Yeah. <laughs> Family members for those inside Mount Carmel began to arrive in Waco, but were universally denied access to talk to them. The FBI suggested that the Branch Davidians make videos for their family and for the media, but none of those videos made it past the FBI. They showed the Branch Davidians speaking about their decisions to first come to Mount Carmel, as well as their decisions to stay at Mount Carmel. In the 1993 Justice Department report, it claimed that the reason the FBI didn't show the tapes was because everyone in the videos talked calmly and confidently, which didn't fit the narrative that the Branch Davidians were quote-unquote lunatics. It didn't fit the narrative that the Branch Davidians were, like you mentioned, lunatics, or that they were a threat, or that yeah. they felt threatened. Like, they were very, like, considering they were, there were tanks outside, they were very relaxed. Very happy-go-lucky for yeah. the situation they were in. <laughs> yeah, considering there's 900, like, armed-to-the-teeth, ready-to-shoot men outside, they were very... Very, very chill. Yeah. In these videos, David sat with his legitimate children, as well as children from his other quote-unquote spiritual wives, and showed off his bullet wound that he received on his hip. And there are multiple times during the negotiations when Koresh coughs or laughs and reopens that wound, leaving him weak and leaning up against a wall during all of the videos. Negotiators tried to get parents to let their kids outside, but most of them decided that keeping the family together was a safer option than sending the kids out to be with the federal agents. Right. It's a wild call or negotiating thing. Again, like the agents and the negotiators don't really understand the Branch Davidians, but like asking these parents to separate from their kids is like kind of lunat like lunacy. In any situation. In any situation. <laughs> Especially one that, like, these kids are children of God. Like, they're right. going to be the 24 elders of Zion that go into the next eon or whatever you want to say. They're hopping on a yeah. jet to Israel. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a very big ask. Yeah. Public callers suggested fencing the Branch Davidians inside of the anthill, letting them starve themselves out once the water and the food ran out. And speaking of the water, the bullet holes from the initial raid had rendered the massive water tanks that the group used much less usable. They could still hold a couple hundred gallons of water, but for 80 people that would only last so long before it ran out. Some of the members actually melted down action figures to try and plug up the holes, but that didn't work. <laughs> I mean, it's good thinking on the spot, to be quite honest. Yeah, just Hate to see your G.I. Joe go, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's helping us survive. Right. G.I. <laughs> <G>. Joe. 
To add to the misery, the agents outside cut the power to the compound about two weeks into the siege. This forced the Branch Davidians to resort to kerosene lanterns and propane heaters with a couple of generators that ran on gas. The biggest drawback to not having power was that the pump to the artesian well, which filled into the water tanks, was now not able to be used. And then came the issue of the children. Not just the fact that there were kids there, because that wasn't the issue, but the little ones needed milk. More specifically, the Branch Davidians believed that goat's milk was the proper milk to give to the children. They apparently believed that goat's milk is healthier than cow's milk, so they would go into town to get it. And in addition, the mothers who were normally able to breastfeed apparently couldn't produce enough milk because of the stress that they were under during the raid. Well, and plus, like, malnutrition. That too. Like, yeah. Even in episode two, we covered what their diet was. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't great. There's only so much popcorn to go around right. for dinner. And now they're subsisting on, like, barely any water and, like, whatever food they can, like, make sure they have to not run out. Right. The Cobra Kai guy is floating in their water system right now. (laughs) The FBI said they would give the group milk in exchange for sending out some of the kids. One of the kids did leave, but then the FBI went back on their end of the deal. And it wasn't until Koresh got in touch with local Sheriff Harwell, who sympathized with the Branch Davidians, that milk was actually sent in. The negotiators once again said that there was dissension between them and the tactical groups. The negotiators may have said, like, yeah, we'll get you milk, but then the tactical officers were like, nah, don't give them milk. Right, and this was, again, they used children for bargaining chips to get milk. Exactly. Which lunacy and one of the mothers inside said like you're just using these kids as a way to get what you want but you're not even thinking about the fact that like these are our children right for a government agency they're not thinking about the citizens food inside the compound slowly dwindled and eventually those inside were reduced to eating packaged mres twice a day water was reduced to two eight ounce rations per person per day as well Since the electricity was cut, there was little defense from the cold at night. And then came the issue of bathrooms. Since they were cut off from their outhouse, business was done into buckets and then dumped down a plank, which led through a hole in the wall and into the gym area, since that was the area that was most exposed to the federal agents and the Branch Davidians had blocked it off. Ooh, wall of poop. (laughs) Yeah. They also emptied the buckets into the tunnels and into the underground bus that served as a tornado shelter, but the feds could enter that area easily if they wanted to, so it was more risky to do it that way. And keep in mind, all this is going on, and the filming, and the excuse me, and the videos that are coming out, they're still very happy in there. Yeah. But they're fine. There's poop in the gymnasium, it's, but they're fine. It's a little less comfortable than what they were used to, pretty much. Which was not saying much. No. <laughs> they didn't, they weren't... Uh, Partakers are like big fans of like material things. Yeah. As physical conditions inside the compound slowly deteriorated, so did the mental conditions. The compound was constantly lit up like Christmas by huge spotlights, while the FBI pumped a barrage of noises at the anthill through large speakers. The sounds of rabbits dying, sirens, bagpipes, and random pop songs would be cycled through for the Branch Davidians to hear. And it was so loud that a neighboring farmer complained and said his cows were losing weight because they were constantly stampeding around the property. Oh my god. Also, the, these boots are made for walking. Yeah, literally. But 
if you do you want to hear what a uh, sounds of rabbits dying is so that you can understand what these people were going through well i know that zuki's gonna want to hear it yeah she's probably gonna freak out but we're gonna go for it anyways I am so uncomfortable. Yeah, so that's what they had to listen to for like hours. That is the worst. My skin is crawling. (laughs) And Jack Zimmerman, one of the attorneys that speaks at the hearings, made a good point saying like, you're pumping all of this psychological warfare at them and then saying that this guy inside is crazy while also actively trying to make him seem crazy. Right, and like actively... (laughs) taking away sleep to yeah. make him make rash decisions. Eventually, the negotiators offered the Branch Davidians medical attention for those who were injured, telling them that they would get the chance to return to the compound after getting patched up. Also, two random dudes somehow slipped through the official perimeter and entered the anthill. <laughs> <laughs> Literally just two dudes. <laughs> hey, what's up? <laughs> One of them was a 25-year-old Pentecostal phone operator who wanted to see if the Branch Davidians were actually evil, while the other was a middle-aged hippie claiming to be a witness from God. <laughs> this story has everything. I don't know how these guys managed to get through. They were, the perimeter was broken. <laughs> like, there's a guy from the Branch Davidians that couldn't even get through. Can you imagine, like, a hippie, like a guy... Probably, hey, I'm man. guessing, yeah, like that stereotypical hippie made it past tanks and yeah. 900 federal agents. He probably just walked up to one of the tanks. He's like, yeah, good job, buddy. He just tells it like, shh, 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 shh. <laughs> I'm no threat. I am one with you. So both of these men stayed for a time studying with David Koresh, but left eventually and were arrested before the final assault took place. <laughs> the, AD, the agencies were probably so confused. Like, who? Huh? Where did you come from? <laughs> we have a manifest of everyone that's supposed to be in there. Who yeah. are you? Peace and love, bro. Yeah. In the meantime, some people on the outside were actively trying to help the Branch Davidians. Two Baptists wrote to President Clinton and requested, quote, Please demilitarize the confrontation at Waco, Texas. It does not call for hundreds of heavily armed federal employees in Abrams tanks waiting for a showdown. It is better to let the Branch Davidian community alone as much as possible until either runs down or stabilizes as a more conventional religion. If there must be a quote-unquote victory to save face for the government, can it not be brought about in a humane way? End quote. Which is not asking a lot. No, just like calm down a little bit. Right. If I remember correctly, to Clinton, a huge part of Clinton's campaign was like he was like the law and order. Like he brought yeah. like the heavy down on like the crack cocaine and like the drug charges. Well, yeah, right? he had to follow up Reagan. So it's oh just my God, like, yeah. uh, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. So like he was very much in favor of like heavy law and order and yeah go get them boys well and like he said it was going to last a week to 10 days so yeah. he had to now stand up to that word right the same day those letters were sent to the president there was another occurrence in washington the attorney general left office and gave way to new attorney general janet reno while reno was settling into the position fbi commander jeff jamar pushed the agenda of tightening the noose around the branch davidians 
He claimed that their standard quote-unquote 10-day role for hostage proceedings had expired, and the federal commanders had lost their patience. However, back in Waco, there was an in-person meeting in the yard around the compound between a couple FBI negotiators and Wayne Martin and Steve Schneider. This meeting apparently went well, but once again, the tactical forces and the negotiators weren't on the same page. Yeah, they both have very different goals in mind, I would say. The tactical team probably wants to, I don't know, probably use some force in this. Yeah, well, like their commanders are all in Washington saying, nothing's happening, we need to do something, everyone's kind of wondering why are we there. Right. So shortly after this meeting was when the power was cut to the compound, and a week later, the assault plans were being prepared for presentation to Janet Reno. A day after that, one of the same negotiators who met with Stephen Wayne signed off on the decision to use tear gas against the Branch Davidians. On March 25th, Jeff Jamar made a demand that 10 to 20 more people should be let out of Mount Carmel or action will be taken. According to the negotiators, they said, quote, This is not a threat, Steve. This is a promise. End quote. Thus probably got rid of all of, like, any preconceived, like, we're moving to a peaceful recourse. Yeah. Or a peaceful course of action, a peaceful conclusion to this. Yeah, I but, may have used the word recourse wrong there. But. I, I think that was fine. <laughs> it was on my word of the day calendar. <laughs> Had to get it in. <laughs> After this negotiation, a Bradley tank dropped off the last of the supplies the Branch Davidians would receive, and the FBI began to tear down the fences for their final assault. Yeah, a tank. A tank. Yeah, a tank delivering milk and crackers to the compound. Like, that is just the definition of how this whole thing is going. U.S. of A, baby. At the end of March, two attorneys were allowed into the compound to meet with David Koresh and to negotiate an end to things. Dick DeGarren and Jack Zimmerman both entered the compound multiple times and saw the state of the Branch Davidians and told them to videotape everything inside, like the blood stains from the people that had died initially, and all of the bullet holes through the ceilings, but all of these tapes were destroyed in the fire, apparently. I mean, yeah, a lot of the, like a lot got just the entire compound basically it, it, got destroyed exactly. in the fire, so I mean, that's also very good cover-up, right. to say, like for federal agencies, but I mean... For that one, I see a little bit yeah. more credence, too. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's a huge, like, look at images if you haven't yet. But if I can't say apparently, then what are the conspiracy guys going to say? <laughs> I forgot our roles. <laughs> We're not facts, guys. <laughs> Daguerre talked to Koresh and told him that this whole thing needed to end, and plans were actually made between Koresh and Daguerre to surrender. In addition to the attorney himself, David would walk out with a Texas Ranger to show that he still had faith in the legal system and had faith in the local law enforcement. According to Jack Zimmerman, quote, Dick DeGarren and David Koresh were going to exit first to show everybody that they weren't going to get executed the minute they stepped outside, end quote. Right, and if you recall, the Branch Davidians and David Koresh really got along well, like extremely well with local law enforcement. Yeah. Right, like they went fishing together. Right, like they, there was no like shockers or surprises between the Branch Davidians and local law enforcement. Like we mentioned earlier this episode, the local law enforcement's local sheriff was pleading their case. Yeah, he was the right? one that got them milk. Like, like the people that know them best have their backs, but the federal side of things is really where it gets messy 
and where people lose patience and where there's just more rash decisions made. It's just funny how like the people that have interacted with them and understand what they believe and what they think about the world, mm-hmm. they understand that they're not a threat. But right. then once all of these random people show up and don't try and understand what they believe, it all turns to shit. <laughs> like, right. The world the word cult was probably never used until a federal agent showed oh, up. Oh, hundred percent. So once David and Daguerre stepped outside to show that it wasn't any danger, they would then go through metal detectors and be patted down while Koresh was taken into custody. Meanwhile, the rest of the Branch Davidians would stand with Zimmerman, and they would slowly be ushered out to show that they weren't a threat to any local law enforcement by exiting more single file rather than in big groups. The FBI would then go in and make sure Mount Carmel wasn't booby-trapped, and afterwards, the Texas Rangers would take over the site and the injured would be taken to hospitals. All right, so there is a, at this point, there's a great plan to get these people out of there. Exactly. You know, very peaceful, really nothing's going to happen in terms of casualties. Like, Hopefully. That's a great, oh, yeah. You never know. A lot of cowboys around. <laughs> right. But, like, things are set in place to be a very peaceful and, like, good transition. Exactly. The federal agents begrudgingly agreed to this plan, which showed that the Branch Davidians were willing to come out peacefully. At the same time these talks were going on, two theologians named James Tabber and Philip Arnold broadcast a radio message through the one station that the compound could get. In this message, they discussed the core beliefs of the Branch Davidians and debated how Koresh might interpret the Bible in a way to allow the group to leave Mount Carmel, but still stay true to their beliefs. Right, like other theologians are getting involved in this and even like some having conversations with Koresh. Yeah. Like during the, negoti- during the negotiations, which federal agencies probably hated, like just wasting, wasting Mike time on that. Right. In their minds, the wasting Bible Mike babble. Time. Yeah. But like it's the only thing that these people understand. Like right. this is a religious group and the federal agents don't see it that way. But it's the, I mean, once the, we start getting the theologians involved, I think like better. There's more willingness to comply and to surrender from the Branch Davidians because people are speaking their language. I think as a whole, it's hard for a lot of people to understand the concept of like true belief for something where like these, the Branch Davidians truly believed in what they were, what David Koresh was preaching. And I feel like a lot of people have like a loose tie to that where they're like, yeah, I believe in the Bible Mm -hmm. or like, yeah, I believe in whatever my religion or what my politics are or whatever. But I don't think a lot of people really understand the dedication of like a true belief to something where that like that's what your whole life is modeled on. It's 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 a very difficult concept to grasp if you're not in that mindset. It truly is. You can't understand someone else's belief system. Like, you don't know what someone else, like, really believes how deep that belief is, right? Right. And that's even if you practice the same exact religion. Yeah. Like, it's impossible to know. So even for, like, these federal agencies to try to get in the mind of people that, you know, I just have a different take on Christianity, so a very well-known and basically the religion of Texas, I would say, that's very broad stroke statement. So I do, yeah. apolo- I do apologize for that. But I mean, come on. I mean, we live in a Christian. <laughs> we live in a Christian society. So yeah. But the point I was trying to make is that there's no way that the federal agencies could really like talk to them, the Branch Davidians, yeah. in their own terms, their own language. They're book people. Like they're by the books on everything. Like they don't. Right. They don't go into like the whole tr- abstract thought kind of thing for the most part during their job. So. 
left everything, brain, right brain. Everything's kinda. very black and white for a federal agent versus right. <laughs> a religious community. Right. So James Tabor and Philip Arnold were the only ones who had attempted to actually look into what the Branch Davidians believed to help formulate a plan. And these two men, in addition to Livingston Fagan, who was, an att- who was one of the uh, members of the Branch Davidians that had left early, attempted to relay their interpretations to law enforcement, but they were largely disregarded as more quote-unquote Bible babble. However, Philip Arnold did predict that Koresh would make his decision whether they wanted to come out during the Passover, which took place during between April 7th and the 14th. And this, this thought was confirmed by Steve Schneider. During the Passover, Koresh communicated to the negotiators that he had received a divine communication, allowing him to transcribe the messages of the seven seals in Revelation for the first time. In Koresh's words, quote, I am presently being permitted to document in structured form the decoded messages of the seven seals. Upon completion of this task, I will be freed from my waiting period. End quote. So to translate that for people, basically he's getting to the end of this. Like he's yeah. received that message from God being like, hey, Davy boy, it's time, to, <laughs> it's time to wrap these things up, grab a pen and paper. Yeah. So he's just getting permitted to write down their beliefs for the first time. And that's basically sticking true to like both sides of the the argument where like he's giving everyone on the branch davidian side what they want because mm-hmm. like then they can spread their message and also be technically in the waiting period while also giving up themselves for the law enforcement koresh said that once the seals were delivered to jim tabor and philip arnold they would leave mount carmel the fbi commanders however dismissed this positive step as another delaying tactic and did not pass the letters along to Janet Reno, continuing to tell her that the negotiations were at a stalemate. Do you think that another point of emphasis for them was they didn't want this mindset, like this person's words, like written word, to get out? Probably. You know, they didn't want, like, they didn't want branch Davidianism, if you will, or just like their, the sect of Christianity to probably, like, gain more headway. This is all speculative. Like they probably be. just didn't want like another in their mind. They thought, well, this could just all happen again. I think like, they we were, don't want this man's message. Yeah, out. I think they were just at an impasse and they were just like, we want to go in and get them out because this is going on for way too long. <laughs> like, I see a reason. I raise you a conspiracy. Theory. I mean, hey, I could, that, that, that could also be part of it. I could see that. I could see it being both. Right. On April 16th, Steve offered to send out a sample of the writings to show that they were making progress. But instead of listening, the FBI sent a tank to break down a wall of the anthill. The feds demanded that 50 people be let out the next day or else action would be taken. That didn't happen, but on April 18th, David completed the first seal and was well into the second. And according to Tabor, the manuscript, quote, might have taken him another week or more to write. David Koresh would have surrendered peacefully when he finished the manuscript. I truly agree with him, too. I mean, for what David Koresh was, I mean, he was pretty true to his word. You know, he was probably just going to write his little thoughts. I shouldn't say little, that's kind of funny, but he's going to like write his thoughts onto a piece of paper and then probably leave peacefully. I, I mean, I don't see a reason why he wouldn't at this point. Because right. I mean, like you said, he had stuck in, he stuck to his beliefs the same way this entire time, like mm-hmm. throughout everything that he did with the Branch Davidians, other than like the New Light revelation with the kid wives, like that thing right. was bad. Very but bad. <laughs> other than that, like everything had stayed the same the whole time. Right. So... I don't see why this would change at that point, but who knows. 
The federal law enforcement agents were getting impatient and the siege was getting expensive. According to Malcolm Gladwell in that New Yorker article, the, 12 ag- the agencies had sent 12 tanks, four combat vehicles, and a total of 899 people between federal and local law enforcement. <clears throat> For the people in the back, 12 tanks. <laughs> 899 people. For U.S. citizens. For a hun- like less than 100 people now. <laughs> 30 of them kids. Yeah. 30-ish of them kids. According to Waco, a survivor story, the siege cost about five hundred thousand dollars a day for, in nineteen ninety three money. So that's probably what it was like a mil? like a total of like thirty million dollars at the end of everything. So, like, and that's in whenever this book was written, money. Oh my god, yeah, that is a hefty bill. Well, hey, tanks aren't cheap. That that is true. Gas, you know, prices are up, man. <laughs> Inflation. But still, David Koresh said he was going to come out, stating in a talk with a negotiator, quote, then I'll be out. Yes, definitely. I'll be in custody in the jailhouse. And when he said that, he was talking about once I finish writing my manuscript, then I'll be out. Yeah, it is very, just in that, in that exchange, the FBI agent keeps on asking him, like, where will you be? Where will you be? Yeah, he's and like, Koresh is like, I'm, I'm, Koresh is like, I'll be in a jail cell. Yeah. The dude is like, then I'll come out. And the guy's like, but what does that mean? Yeah. And he's like, I'll be coming out to go to jail. Right. And the guy's like, yeah, but that could mean like anything. Like, is that a week from now? Is that a year from now? He's like, no, I'll be out <laughs> when I finish this. Like, you can put me in handcuffs. <laughs> but if you had forgotten, the negotiators and the commanders were on two very different pages. In Washington, the plans for assault, named Jericho, an ironic biblical pull for an agency that had ignored any attempt at understanding the Branch Davidians' biblical beliefs, was being presented to Janet Reno. She questioned why it was necessary now, when things were still going fine, but pressure from the tactical command forced her hand. The plan would go forward, using a tear gas known as CS gas to flush out the occupants over 48 hours. Side note, CS gas had been outlawed from use during warfare in January, months before this. Yeah, so they probably had a stockpile of it and said, well, where do we use it? Our own (laughs) citizens. Our own soil. Reno approved the use of the gas, stating she had reason to believe there were militia groups coming to support the Branch Davidians and that David was still abusing children inside. Yeah, and from everything that we've seen and done research on, there weren't militia groups coming because, again, this was a religious group, and different from Ruby Ridge, they really had no, like, truly no affiliation with any violent groups. And even when the military like, militia groups came to try and help at Ruby Ridge, they were caught immediately. So Imme- what is... Imme- like, truly immediately. You've got tanks there. What is going to happen? <laughs> Yeah, the only thing that happened is they let a hippie through. (laughs) They let two random dudes, yeah. (laughs) On the morning of April 19th, the loudspeakers outside the compound stated, quote, this is not an assault, it's just tear gas, end quote. What? (laughs) What a take. I know. Like, truly what a take. In the video, you constantly hear them saying, like, this is not an assault. This is not an assault. It's like, yeah, it is. It's one of those situations where if it looks like an assault, it feels like an assault, it smells like an assault. Well, what were the Branch Davidians wearing? That's the real question. (laughs) (laughs) 
Tanks rolled in and broke through the walls of the compound, pumping in the CS gas. Branch Davidians attempted to hide in the chapel, but there wasn't much they could do. Since the CS gas is heavier than air, their attempts to get low to the ground were counterproductive, and as a result, many, if not all, of the asphyxiation deaths during the assault can likely be contributed to the gas itself, and not the fire, according to a Congress report from 1996. Those inside that were able and could manage to fit a gas mask on, put it on. But in the case of the children, many would likely not have been able to fit a gas mask on. With a gas like CS that can agitate soldiers after very brief exposure, the Branch Davidians would have had no recourse to being exposed to it for almost six hours. As mothers inside attempted to cover their children in blankets and put their gas masks on, a fire broke out. In addition to being very harmful itself, CS gas is also very flammable. The fire immediately lit the entire compound. Inside, survivors recall seeing a literal fireball scorching its way down the hallways. The fire, estimated to have burned close to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, close to cremation temperatures. Any attempt at refuge from the fire was useless, since the underground bus had been deliberately loaded with CS gas in an attempt to round everyone into a central area. During this chaos, 21 people perished from gunshot wounds. Some were seemingly self-inflicted in the mouth and some were in the back of the head, mercy killing or execution style, depending on which stance you want to take. And some argued that a number of these people were shot out of compassion while their world burned around them. But there are also reports that agents were seen firing upon the burning area as they retreated. It's hard to put into words what's the last moments of these people must have been like. Like your option was, and this is going to be very graphic, so please skip if you don't want to hear it. Like their options were put a gun in your mouth or basically choke to death from CS gas or burn alive. Yeah. Like that's unreal. And it happened directly because of a government agency. Well, and you're watching your children in this scenario. Like yeah. there's what there's one of the medical examiners like after the fact st- said like even I would have to make the decision of like do I just shoot my kid out of compassion? Like yeah. I don't want them to continue suffering like this. Like I know we're not getting out of here. So what other options do we have? It's it's like so harrowing. And like CS gas, like they're if you're going to get a mask on, like you're blind during all this. Like I watched a I just Googled CS gas and like you, there was a video where U.S. Army soldiers just briefly walk into a room with it and they're essentially blind walking out. Yeah. And they dumped, I know I saw the number of how many cans well, that it, they dumped into. It was, wasn't it like 40 or 400? Yeah, it was like 400. It was like 400 cans of this extremely like potent gas that was outlawed and more. Yeah. And they're exposed to it for six hours yeah. and it's like, 10 times to 16 times the concentration that is usually effective. <laughs> so, yeah, it doesn't take much to make people not like be able to see correctly. Right. You know, it takes very, it takes cutting onions. It, it is like the most, uh, I don't, I don't even know, like tragic way for a group like that hasn't really done anything to just no? get attacked by its own people, like the people that are supposed to protect and serve. Yeah. Their government rammed into their walls with tanks. Again, for, 
for what? Like there was no event that I well, of course, like the initial shootout, but there was just no reason for any of this there was, when you look back at it. There was a month and a half, and then they finally made peace terms, and then they do this. It just makes no sense. Right. And if you want to compare it again to like Ruby Ridge, like the agents were encroaching and they ran into the kids and then shots were fired. It was kind of like the same situation. Like, why are they even like, why were the agents even there? Why were they looking at this family? Yeah. Why? Like, there was no reason, in my opinion, that they should have even been dealing with the Branch Davidian. Well, of course, child wives situation. Yeah. Very, very, very bad. But to get a federal agency involved, like the ATF involved, I just don't think ah, the moral of my long-winded rant is this could have been avoided. Yes. As a few of the members found a way out, some of them through broken walls and some jumping out of second-story windows, the building exploded. While this happened, the FBI grabbed the survivors, only nine in total, and handcuffed them, stripped them, and took them away. Despite knowing the fire risks, uh, former FBI Director Larry Potts said in the House deliberations that they were aware of the fire risks. No fire trucks were on site during the assault, and all of the agents asked about this in the hearings claimed that they either had no knowledge of a fire contingency plan or didn't know if there was one or not. The agents apparently didn't call for any fire trucks until 10 minutes after the fire had started, and once the trucks arrived, they were delayed another 16 minutes due to quote-unquote safety concerns which clearly didn't extend to the women and children the agents were so concerned about throughout the siege. So they had, just to recap, they had knowledge that there were fire risks of, this, of using this equipment, this gas, as well as one of the reasons why they were there was because there was gunpowder. Yeah. They knew that there was gunpowder. They knew that there were these things. They knew that there were 200,000 plus things of ammunition, which go boom. Like if they are exposed to heat. Like, they had full knowledge of that this could happen, and they still did it. Yeah. Agents claimed the Branch Davidians caused the fire in, a, in an attempt to carry out a planned mass suicide, but no evidence has ever been presented to support that narrative. Nobody knows who officially started the fire, but the conditions for it were certainly set by the FBI and their excessive use of CS gas, which I mentioned were sometimes 16 times more than the effective amount in some areas. Right, and this wasn't a group suicide, excuse me, the Branch Davidians weren't, like, group suicide was never part of their MO, never part of their beliefs. That was never occurred in anyone's thoughts. No. But, like, how did they, so they say that the Branch Davidians set the fire for self-suicide, but then there were also bodies with gunshots all over the place. And they had 50 days to do this. Like, right. they could have done this at any point. Why did they wait until you come in and set a fire? Yeah, they waited until you brought in a tank. Like, But then, that, then again, that compares them to the narrative at Jonestown. Like, oh, it's just a mass suicide. Right. After the fire was put out, ATF agents proudly put up their flag in the rubble, adding insult to death, as they had when they ran over the crude graves of the compound with their tanks days before. The media took control of the narrative quickly. According to Waco, quote, Some religious fanatics murdered themselves, President Clinton declared, but he was wrong. The truth is that a religious community that threatened or harmed no one was brutally destroyed by agents of the U.S. government in broad daylight, watched by the world. 
The FBI assault on Mount Carmel was one of the most violent episodes of official religious persecution in U.S. history. End quote. Janet Reno went on shows like Larry King Live, defending her position that children were being beaten inside and the assault had good intentions. In the House hearings in 1995, Democrat Chuck Schumer also defended the raid on the basis of the child abuse allegations. Those good intentions led to the deaths of 76 men, women, and children. It's insane that they justify their actions because of child abuse while also killing the children. Yeah. While also there's like, there's just dead babies. Like there's Everywhere. on their on their hands. Like the ATF, for example, like on their website, which I'm still reading, I quote here, and this is their comments about Waco, like the aftermath. I quote here, the agency is made up of dedicated, committed, and experienced professionals who have regularly demonstrated sound judgments and remarkable courage in enforcing the law. The ATF, and I'm still quoting. The ATF has a history of success in conducting complex investigations and executing dangerous and challenging law enforcement missions. That fine tradition, together with the line agent's commitment to the truth and their courage and determination, has enabled ATF to provide our country with a safer and more secure nation under law. For our children. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, for our children, which they are now less of. Yeah. Shout out. In the aftermath of Waco, a lot still needed to be done. Some of the children who had been sent out without parents during the siege were now placed in homes or with foster families, and surviving parents had to attempt to get their children back. Additionally, 11 of those who came out of the compound early were put on trial for murder or conspiracy to commit murder charges, in addition to various firearms charges. At the end of the trial, which seems stacked against the defendants, all 11 were surprisingly found innocent of murder or conspiracy to commit murder. However, many of them were found guilty on firearms charges and given extreme sentences. Yeah, keep in mind, after this, the media attention was still calling them a cult. And so, like, they were convicted and, like, people were like, yep. Yeah. Checks the boxes. Well, and it's so, got to be so hard to find a jury in Texas oh for that. Yeah. Like, you have to find... However, like nine to eleven people or whatever to try and say like, oh, I'm unbiased on this. Right, I've been living under a rock. Yeah. Realizing that their verdicts were contradictory because firearms charges committed during an act which they had been declared innocent of, the jury foreman Sarah Bain later stated, "Quote: If we were to have the trial today, and if I were again the foreman of the jury, with all of the information that has come to light since then." I think the outcome would be very different. Even back then, we all felt a little bit blue about our verdicts, which the evidence presented had compelled us to render. We consoled ourselves by saying that the trial of the Davidians was just the first shoe dropping, that the ATF officials who'd formulated the fatal February 28th raid would also be made to face a trial. To me, it's a disappointment and a disgrace that the second shoe has never dropped. End quote. Yeah, like that's very powerful words from the the head juror yeah the sentences ranged from three to 40 years with heavy fines to cover the fbi for their monetary losses during the siege and assault livingston fagan the kindly black man who had come from britain to join the branch davidians that i mentioned earlier was sent to levensworth prison known for being one of the more brutal penitentiaries in the united states which held brutal serial killers like carl panzram 
Upon his incarceration, Livingston said that he was beaten and thrown into a cold, open cell or cage in his underwear without blankets or a mattress and suffered from two seizures as a result. In his own words in a letter, quote, After continuously slamming my head against the concrete floor, the 300-pound officer then verbalized his intent to kill me for not cowering to his will, end quote. Right. And keep in mind, again, in the public's eyes, like these are the Branch Davidians. Well, I mean, like ATF, like law enforcement did die during the initial shootout, right? So by extension, when they get to prison, typically people who kill law enforcement officers are treated extremely well. And the narrative is that these cult members killed officers and killed agents. Which again, agents did die in a shootout, but it's not like it was these direct people. Yeah, does that make sense? Right. It you living, know, so like living, they have like that. No, they have like that. What am I trying to say? They have that brand on them. Yeah, but Livingston is like one of the kindest people. Like everyone said, he was one of the nicest guys in the entire group. So right. it's, it's and it's ironic that he's one of the few black members that gets yeah. sentenced to the harshest place and gets treated the worst. Oh, yeah. A while later, after the fact, FLIR infrared data from the assault was analyzed by multiple independent groups, and many of them claimed that there were gunshots seen outside the compound from agents. And if you don't know what FLIR is, it's like a company, but they do like infrared overhead shots, like mm-hmm. all of the big black and white footage where you see all the heat signatures and stuff. Yeah, that's all them. In addition, two quote-unquote pyrotechnic projectiles were found inside the rubble of Mount Carmel near where the fires had started, according to the documentary Waco's Rules of Engagement. FLIR analysis also claims that there are flashes of heat consistent with handheld grenade launchers in addition to automatic gunfire outside of the building. However, to this day, nobody can claim with certainty who started the fire. At House hearings, the question of the automatic weapons that the Branch Davidians had was never really resolved either. The Department of Justice claims that they could have tested some of the guns that they took from the rubble to see if they were automatic, but they claim the tests were too expensive. According to Republican Bill McCollum during the hearings, quote, Apparently out of fear that the revelations in these hearings could damage the Clinton presidency, the White House, Congressman Schumer, and and some at Treasury and Justice set out this past week to ridicule, trivialize, and discredit these hearings, end quote. But both the Democrats and Republicans politicized the matter, making about either defending the Clinton administration or criticizing it. Which is like of no surprise. Of course, no. uh, something of this magnitude and events, this large scale is going to get politicized, and oftentimes, like it happened, like the people actually involved were completely forgotten about, meaning the Branch Davidians or, like, the other, like you mentioned, the second shoe never dropped for, like, the agents that were right responsible for this. As for the question of who fired first on February 28th, that's still in the air, too. According to Texas Ranger Captain David Burns, the ATF prevented the crime scene processing team of the Rangers from entering the site while the ATF was, in Burns' words, obviously altering outside evidence. The right half of the front door of the compound was missing, which apparently showed the evidence of shots being fired from the outside into the compound. Another ranger claimed to see the FBI throwing away quote-unquote trash before it could be investigated as evidence. 
Claims from ATF officials of 50 caliber weapons being shot by the Branch Davidians have never been officially verified. However, automatic weapons were entered into evidence by the feds. According to Dick DeGarren, he never saw any grenades inside the anthill other than the flashbangs that had not exploded upon entrance when the ATF tossed them in, which Chuck Schumer claimed could not injure people. Mm-hmm. And Chuck Schumer during the whole, I just want to punch him in the face. He's the worst. <laughs> he stinks. I, do, do you remember the scene in there where uh, like the, one of the guys gives a ball of Play-Doh to a man from like the ATF, and he's like, now pretend that's a flash grenade. Would you be comfortable holding that if that was a flash grenade right now? And the guy's like, no. He's like, so that could injure you, right? And he's like, yeah. He's yeah. Like, that could kill someone maybe, right? And he's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the whole time that's Chuck Schumer is just kind of like resting his head on his hands like, you guys suck. <laughs> Like with Ruby Ridge, some efforts were made to change policy after Waco to ensure this doesn't happen again. FBI Director Louis Free created a new position, which he called a special agent in charge of critical incident response, to provide a better and more subtle way to deal with quote-unquote unusual groups like the Branch Davidians. However, Free continued to claim the whole ordeal was the Branch Davidians' fault. While this is a good step the negative consequences were just as vocal in the aftermath. Radical right-wing groups and militant extremists adopted Waco as a rallying cry against the government. And one of the most tragic results of this would come on the two-year anniversary of Waco, when Timothy McVeigh loaded a truck with explosive material and blew up a federal building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people and injuring some 500 more. In the end, Nobody in the federal agencies really faced any consequences from the actions at Waco. The survivors of the assault held a memorial on the anniversary of the tragedy, where some looking to profit off the events came and sold t-shirts to onlookers. Like, that makes me want to cry. It's... Like, who, who, who makes a t-shirt? The amount of grift that people took from this and just yeah. used for their advantage is... It's very disheartening. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's like with any tragedy, there's always money to be made. Someone's going to. As law professor Edward Gaffney wrote, quote, Precisely because there will probably be no meaningful judicial review of any of these constitutional issues in the Waco case, it is all the more imperative in our, demo- in our democracy that we, the people, think critically about what the government did at Waco, lest the raid of the Davidians becomes by our silence and our complicity a precedent for doing it again to some other marginalized religious group of which the government disapproves. End quote. And that is where we will end our series on Waco and the Branch Davidians. Yeah, that quote is extremely powerful. I think it's the like, perfect way to end. Like you can't... We've talked three episodes of, of this topic trying to shed light because I believe like we talked about in episode one, this is considered by a majority of people that it was just cult members dying, whereas that is just not the case. Yeah. It, you know, it, even like to this day with a lot more facts present, it still kind of has that brand of it was a cult. Right. And this isn't us saying like, oh, David Koresh did nothing wrong. We've made it. I, th- I would hope we've made it clear at this point that like he wasn't a good guy. Oh, no. He was very bad but none of none of not him nor any of the people that followed him deserved to be treated this way right like you're still talking about 
like U.S. citizens dying by the hands of their government. And I think that's the main thing we're trying to take away is like that there was no reason this should have ended how it did. Right. There was no reason why people should have burned alive or died of CS gas or had to put, again, skip because this is graphic, had to put a gun in their mouth. All based on the fact that the ATF was pursuing charges in a jurisdiction they weren't allowed to pursue charges in. So where the local law enforcement was completely like they're like yeah they just mind their own business the branch Davidians have a they have a band no evidence of child abuse whatsoever right but yeah we hope we shed a little more light on this topic for all of you out there listening Uh, i know that i am glad that this is over so that i don't have to think about it for a month straight but (laughs) (laughs) yeah we started this at the beginning of the month and here we are shortest (laughs) month of the year and we've pretty much taken up the whole thing with waco But yes, guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, If you want to continue the conversation with us, you can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. Jacob is at... Wow. You can do it. Jacob is at Jacob from Wisco. (laughs) I am at Wadevskis. You can also follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, and Patreon, and Facebook. At Gems of History Podcast, uh, the Facebook group is a conversation area. It's called the Agora, but if you type in Gems of History Podcast, you'll definitely find us. But let's continue the conversation. I mean, this is a very, this topic in this series is very eye-opening in a lot of ways. This might be one of, because that's why I was so nervous doing this series, because there's so much to it and it's so controversial like there's so many different sides to take oh people have takes yeah so <laughs> this is definitely one if you want to get in conversations with us about it we're willing to talk about it because there's so much we couldn't get to mm-hmm. that could be talked about as well so it's also rewind we're willing to talk about it if it's respectful chatting yeah <laughs> we're not we're not going to get in any dirt yeah if it's going to be just like attacking us as people then we don't want to hear about it but right i'm very fragile uh yeah if you want to support us on patreon the website is patreon.com slash gems of history podcast uh we appreciate all of you guys who do donate we Mm -hmm. we know that it's not something you have to do so we appreciate anyone that does it means a lot to us Mm -hmm. big fans of yours as well yeah maybe fans of us but we're even bigger fans of you and you know what it motivates us to be better will it make us better no (laughs) one knows (laughs) (laughs) you've if you listened to this show for the last two years, you know that I am at a very, <laughs> very long plateau. Have we peaked? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> All right, guys. That's all we got for you guys this week. We will be back next week with hopefully less child death. Um, but until then, everyone, have a great week. We love you all and stay polished.